You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. What is the best way to keep your brain growing stronger and stronger? Well, it turns out as you get older, your brain develops superpowers, but only if you treat it the right way. Although you could start at any point to treat it the right way. And who do I talk to about this? My good friend, Stephen Kotler. You've heard him before in this podcast. He's, he is the world's expert on flow and achieving the state of flow. He just wrote a book called NAR Country, G-N-A-R Country, Growing Old and Staying Rad. Let's listen to what he says because honestly, I want superpowers for my brain. I'm trying really hard to achieve peak performance at my advanced old age of 55. This is one of the most valuable podcasts I've done for me. So let's listen. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Let's do it. So when you're skiing, she's running her dog sanctuary and things are good. Yeah, totally. We have a deal. And 
I don't do anything else, James. Like you have to understand, I work, help with the dogs and I ski. And that's essentially everything I, that's, that's all of it. I love the work, but like, you know, if I wasn't scared, we don't take vacations when you have, when you're at a dog sanctuary, nobody, you can't leave town. So she doesn't feel the urge to write novels again. Like you're feeling this, this these urges from your youth to to kind of recapture the glory. Does she ever feel like, oh, I should write another book? I don't think anything in our country was about recapturing glory of my youth because I never had that that particular glory. Like it was not mine. That was not my childhood. Um, maybe it was setting unfinished business for sure, but like it's not recapturing anything because that glory didn't exist the first time. Um, but, but oh, not glory, but love. Maybe that's love true. For skiing. And yeah, but it, I mean, but almost, James, you have to understand that most of my, all of my life has been spent solving a number of challenges that you never talk about. Like, how do you get paid as a writer? How do I live in such a way that I can either surf or ski on a daily basis? Where are my people? You know, like, those are the questions that, that end up shaping a life and where you live and things like that. So those are the questions that I've spent my entire life trying to answer in one way or another. And I think finally now in my fifties, I got the answer right. Well, let's talk about that for a second. You know, a lot of people who are pursuing their loves and their dreams in their fifties, they're doing it because they've achieved some balance between their costs and the profits they make from either business or writing or the profits they might've made earlier from that, or they, they simplify their lifestyle so they could pursue these things. Like, I know you make money writing. You write, you've written like 14 books. This is your 14th book, I think. You must get like okay advances or good advances. And, you know, your wife's running a dog sanctuary. She must make money from that. But it's not like we know as writers, even if you, unless you're like writing Freakonomics or something, advances go down. Well, James, I, James I, I, I'm the executive director of the Flow Research Collective. So we work in 120 countries at this point. There's about 100 people who work you know, with me and for me, we train, you know, everybody from professional athletes and U.S. Navy SEALs and, and spec ops folks through, you know, C-suite executives, whole company, and we, I mean, Bain Capital, Accenture, Audi, Facebook, the Air Force. Um, and they pay, and they pay you, like it's good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these, yeah, the, the company does, does incredibly well. I think we're the world leader in neuroscience-based peak performance training. Um, so, uh, and I'm, you know, I run our whole research division. So we, we, we run uh, experiments with, with folks at Stanford and USC and UCLA and Imperial College London. We publish in, you know, the, the, the results in major neuroscience journals. So I'm, I'm responsible for working on those papers and working on those experiments and, you know, running the whole company. So like, <laughs> I've got four or five different jobs. <laughs> How much time do you spend on, on the, the flow research as opposed to, let's say, skiing and writing? Um, I can tell you exactly the answer to that. So um, if I'm not promoting a book, I'm non, you know what I mean? If not during the, during the schedule where I'm doing a lot of podcasts and that sort of stuff. Um, I write from 4 a.m. to about 8. Um, I hike my dog and eat breakfast between 8 and 9. I will run the company from 9 to about noon. And then in the afternoons, twice a week, I'll ski during the week. Twice a week, I'll, I'll do company stuff. Twice a week, I'll, I'll do long editing sessions, like three or four hour long editing sessions. Um, and on the weekends, I'll usually write a couple extra hours. And um, But those that's essentially the schedule. 
And so, you know, NAR Country came about because there's a lot of controversy, or, or, or let's not say controversy, there's a lot of disagreement about what things older people can succeed at versus younger people. What declines as you get older, what advances yeah. as you get older. And of course, the, the general feeling over the past 20 million years is that as you age, most things decline. Physically, we decline. Mentally, the theory is, is that we decline, although this, a lot of neuroscience has, has called this into question. But what, let me ask it in the reverse direction. What actually is great when we're young that we don't have later? And I'm not talking about physical, because that's so obvious. I'm not sure there's, the, I don't, there's an interesting answer to that question, I but you're right. The traditional theory about aging is the long, slow route theory, right? Our, our mental and physical skills decline over time. There's nothing we can do to stop that slide. That theory actually dates back to Freud. It was something Freud said in 1904, but we spent most of the 20th century proving Freud right. And so by the like 1990s, we've got a long list of all the stuff that declines. Um, and then in the mid 90s, cracks start to appear. And in New York, actually, you get Yaakov Stern working on cognitive reserve, Elkanon Goldberg working on the neuroprotective powers of expertise and wisdom and a couple other things like that. And between nine, the 1995 and today, we now know that across the boards, all the stuff that we used to think declined over time with a couple of exceptions that, I, that I'll speak about, which sort of answer your question, I think, um, decline over time. We now know they're all user to lose its skills. So if you if you never stop using them, you can hang on to them, even advance them far later in life than anybody thought possible. This was sort of the backstory that led into NAR. This is 20 years of research in and around peak performance aging and, and things along those lines, um, including the hospice work, care work that Joy and I do with the dogs, because we do hospice work. We've been incredibly successful at extending the lives of our dogs. And the question was, well, is working for the dogs going to work for humans? Was one of the places this started, but it all sort of came together at kind of the point that you brought up, which is there's a whole bunch of new evidence that says it's now possible for old dogs to learn new tricks. In fact, it turns out that old dogs are actually better at learning a whole bunch of new kind of tricks than younger dogs. The In terms of what declines, what you might want to hold on to younger, there is somewhat of a what I think is a lazy and incorrect argument around fluid intelligence. What is true is... One of the only things that we can't seem to reverse is white matter density declines over time in the brain, and that links directly to processing speed. Um, and so as white matter declines, we tend to become a little more risk averse. It's one of the reasons you want to train up risk taking over time. Well, let me back up a little bit because you said something really important that processing speed declines because white matter decreases. So white matter is myelination. So in your brain, you've got neurons and they form networks like long axons and myelon wraps the axons there. It's insulation. And over time, certain parts of that brain, that insulation thins. Okay. So, so let me, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of break down each thing. So myelination happens when you're doing an activity or, or a mental activity over and over, then the connection between yes. various synapses gets stronger because it's wrapped and protected by this myelin. And so for instance, memory could be much stronger when you're younger because that's when you have more myelin to wrap around memories. Memory won't be stronger. Myelination is about processing speed, how fast the neurons are taught, how fast the brain is trading information. Memories are, are stored in diverse neural networks and they tend to be very redundant. So processing speed is 
less impact memory is less impacted by processing speed though there's probably an impact there that i'm not that that i'm not so thinking about impacted? but like, the, like, so let, let's let's talk about let's take it one step further because you highlighted that it was important but one of the things that's interesting this isn't really work covered in our country but it, it's going on and it's neat so the cutting edge of a lot of uh neurophysiology right now is about the bones your bones are where your body stores most of its minerals, all, a lot of its nutrients, almost everything that runs the brain, including calcium, which runs every kind of exchange in the brain, is stored in bones. So there's a lot of thinking that says, hey, bone density is very correlated to preserving physical function and cognitive function. This is the reason why. And we're getting really good at, at solving bone density problems. And there's some new evidence that suggests that the decline in myelination is actually a bone density problem. And that by fixing the bones, we're going to end up not losing our processing speed. But right now that loss in myelination is correlated with risk aversion in older adults. But, but given that there's more myelination when you're younger, what is better well, when there's you're not. younger. So myelination builds it up over time. As you pointed out, it's about expertise, right? The more you automate and practice a skill, the more it gets hardwired into the brain and you get myelination. So expertise develops over time. Myelination, like other things in the brain, you know, tend to decline a little bit starting in our 50s. So it's about how do you produce new neurogenesis? How do you protect the networks that still exist? And, and how do you birth new neurons and really support that? In terms of the brain, in terms of mental agility, what can people in their teens or 20s do that people in their 50s or 60s can't with the brain? So I don't know, because the answer is I don't know. James, I don't know if there's a, I don't know if anybody has the answer to that question yet, because everything we're knowing about the adult brain and what's possible there is changing. The younger brain stuff, there's probably some stuff around, like, let me give you an example. The classic answer to this would be learn a foreign language or gymnastics or ballet, right? Onboarding. Or, or mathematics, this, right? Or mathematics, right? But let me, let me talk about something for a second. I don't know. This is what was pausing me. This is the exact, this is where I got hung up, right? I was going to give you this answer and this is where I stopped. I don't know if this is true on the intellectual side, on the cognitive side, but on the physical side, one of the things that we discovered and we mean in the field and really in our country is very much about this one idea. So that motor skills learning window that is supposed to be open in our childhood and then shut, slam shut, which is why nobody becomes a professional ballerina in their forties, right? It's the same reason why nobody would take on a quest like I took on, how do you learn to park ski in your 50s? Same reason. One of the reasons I believed I could learn to park ski in my 50s was there's a lot of evidence coming out of sort of embodied cognition that says it's not that the motor learning window shuts, it's that how we learn as kids changes radically with how we learn as adults. And if you go back to a play-based learning style without a lot of shame, without a lot of embarrassment, without being wedded to outcome and progress and that sort of stuff, learning speeds massively increase, which is exactly what we showed in the NAR country experiments where, where I first used this methodology to learn park ski, somebody else did, then we ran an experiment with 20 older adults, then we stripped out the park skiing and, and, and substituted hiking with a weight vest for the physical properties and ran the experiment with 300 people and were, had great success across the board. So 
Um, we know that you can reopen these motor learning windows with a play-based approach. I don't know if the same thing is true for cognitive stuff, right? For foreign language learning or math. That's where my hesitance, that was where I was like fumbling, going back and forth. And I was, cause it's a lot of stuff like that where we're not sure. There's a great paper by Marty Seligman and Scott Barry Kaufman that looks at creativity, for example, over time and what changes in the brain. And certain skills decline. There's like a list of six or seven things like processing speed, for example, that we know sort of decline over time. And I'll come back to those in half a second. And then there's the list of all the stuff we gain that creativity taps on. And the stuff we gain is like 25 items and the stuff we lose is like seven or eight. And here's where that's those seven or eight are weird. I'll give you a simple example. One of the things that supposedly declines over time is our ability to task switch. Adam Ghazali, who's a neuroscientist at University of California, San Francisco, who's on my board at the Flow Research Collective. We do a bunch of cool research with him. He had the cover of Nature four or five years ago uh, because he had developed a video game that it's the very first video game to be approved by the FDA and prescribed by doctors. And it treats task switching in older adults. And you can take a 60 year old brain, play his video game three times a week for, I think it's 20 minutes, a half an hour. And within, I think it's six weeks, you can go back to the task switching speed of like a 20 year old. So wow. there's a bunch of stuff. That's why the, it's, it's fuzzy. It's hard to answer this stuff because there's, there's stuff that we're learning about the brain where like the old ideas are just wrong. Like we, they're use it or lose it skills. They're not declining skills. Um, two, there's stuff we now know how to fight back against cognitive decline and dementia and Alzheimer's. And we know like expertise and wisdom and the diffuse neural nets they create are the best ways to sort of fight back. Like, so it's all that kind of stuff. So, and I haven't, you asked a question from a hard angle, like what do kids have that adults don't have? And I, like, honestly, I don't know. Like, I'm not sure. It's a trickier question for a lot of the reasons I've, I'm hopefully elucidating. But maybe this sense of play and the kind of shame that kids feel is different than the kind of shame that adults feel. Cause you mentioned the word shame could so this is this fun. is yeah this is so this is interesting and this is the other reason one of the other reasons why adults are better at learning than, than kids so this is work that um a bunch of different neuroscientists did but Gene Cohn who's the sort of the godfather of geriatric psychiatry and a great hero in the peak performance aging field sort of crystallized together with a couple of big studies and so what Gene discovered is that first over time the brain changes right and really positive changes start to happen in our late forties in a bunch of different ways. There's a bunch of genes that only turn on with experience and they get ratcheted up. The two hemispheres of the brain, which as you know, sort of, they don't really work together. They sort of work in opposition for most of our life. They start to work together really well in our fifties. So, um, and also in our fifties and that, by the way, that hemisphere cooperation accelerates and increases in our fifties and sixties peaks in our eighties. Um, and finally the brain in our fifties, starts to recruit underutilized regions. Oh, you're not, you, you don't have a, you don't know a musical instrument. You're not using this space over here. So let's use it for redundancy. And like, so we can back up memories and do other stuff like that. That starts to happen in our fifties. As a result of these changes, we unlock a whole, like three new levels of intelligence, new kinds of problem solving, uh, analogical thinking, analytical reasoning comes online. We get access to whole new levels of creativity, divergent thinking, like outside the box, far-flung pattern recognition um, really turns up because the two sides of the brains are talking to one another in new ways. Um, we can also get access to whole new levels of empathy and wisdom. Okay, now, you did, I'm not answering the question you asked, 
let's go back to the question you asked, which was about shame and right. Like what the hell is this? Any of this have to do with shame? And, and the reason I asked this, Stephen, is because you just mentioned a lot of these new intelligences and you describe those three basic new intelligences in the book, the relativistic, non-dualistic, and then I forget the name of the third systems thinking. But, but the, the issue is most people don't experience this increase in, you know, new kinds of cognitive ability. And I think it's because we are saddled with let's say lack of playfulness that we had when we were kids, or maybe more shame related to success or failure, whether it's a small activity or, or a life activity. So that's why I wonder if shame is a critical. So component. yeah, you may, so let me, let me answer your question now. Here's the second half of that. You're, you're partially right. And you may not, you, you may be totally, you may be completely right. I just haven't seen any research in it, but this is what we know. And this is work done that comes out of adult development, the Harvard uh, studies of adult development, uh, the Stanford studies, all this stuff. They realize that these cognitive superpowers have moderators, if then conditions. And there's like four of things that you have to do to unlock them. So by age 30, you got to solve the crisis of identity. You got to know who you are. By 40, you have to have figured out sort of match fit or match quality, which means there's a tight match between who you are and what you're doing at the bulk of your time, right? Fits your values, your strengths, that sort of thing. That's why identity matters. Like you can't find match fit if you don't know who you are. And then by 50, and this is the answer to your question, you can't get access to the cognitive superpowers, especially the empathy and wisdom, if you don't have forgiveness of others and forgiveness of self. It seems to block that development. And then finally, in your 50s, um, to really unlock those superpowers, you need to be regularly engaged in challenging and creative activities. That creativity and actively being creative in any way is what starts to unlock those superpowers. So if you're seeing people who aren't getting it there, it's not because they can't. It's because they haven't progressed through these gateways of adult development that you need in order to unlock these superpowers. And then there's two more things you have to pay attention to if you want to hang on to them over time. Okay. What are, what are the two things? And then I have questions starting from thing number one. Okay. The two things are one for reasons we talked about, like the thinning of the uh, gray matter risk aversion. So if you get more risk averse over time and it happens naturally, we get more risk averse as we get older, um, not across the boards, but in most things, risk aversion means more fear, more norepinephrine, more cortisol, and it blocks a lot of the creativity, the new levels of intelligence and the wisdom and empathy. So if you're not actively taking risks and training risks, you're going to move backwards. You may get access to these superpowers, but they're going to limit themselves. Second thing is physical fragility. We know all these, like we, our bodies don't decline in the way that we used to, but you have to train all five categories of functional fitness. And the World Health Organization has been exactly clear on how much training we need, right? It's strength, stamina, flexibility, balance, and agility. And to for peak performance aging, not just healthy aging, for peak performance aging, you wanna push yourself as hard as you can. It's 150 to 300 minutes of aerobic activity a week, moderate to vigorous, two strength training days minutes. a week. That's so that's five hours of aerobic. Six hours. It's five, yeah, it's five hours of, of vigorous, moderate to vigorous aerobic activity. And, and wait, it gets worse. Two strength training days a week and three balanced flexibility and agility days a week. It's basically what they're saying is you you can hang on to everything, but you're you it's it's gonna require about two hours of training five days a week. Or, and this is one of the reasons in our country focuses on skiing. 
You can pick activities. Skiing is one. Tennis is actually another. There's a bunch of activities that check off multiple categories at once. So skiing um, actually loads the legs very nicely, builds up leg strength, also improves bone density. Um, You get stamina. You get balance. You get flexibility. You get agility. Most action sports require all all those, um, which is one of the reasons why communities where action sports are, are really heavy are very long-lived communities in America, Summit County, Eagle County, and Pitkin County, Colorado, where like Vail and Beaver Creek and Aspen. People on average live about 10 years longer than the rest of the country in those zones. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side-by-side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I 
signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter. And I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. You mentioned in the book the idea of these blue zones where people live uh, have high quality uh, lifespans, maybe in, even into their hundreds. And in the book, the blue zones, uh, one of those areas is Aventura, California, which is the only area that's that's very ethnically diverse. So the question is why? And it turns out there's a particular religion there, Seventh Day Adventists, and they they take big, huge walks every weekend. And so there's a lot of yeah, food. it's yeah. So there's a lot. That's the other thing. Yeah, that's the other thing I was going to mention is Loma Linda, California, and they also the Adventists do. Um, they take huge walks. The other thing that really matters. So if you want to, let me just say this. Get this last thing out because you're going to, and, and then and then I'll just let you. If you really want to understand like peak performance aging, what it demands is that we regularly engage in challenging creative and social activities that demand dynamic deliberate play and take place in novel outdoor environments. That's peak performance aging in a sentence. Now you still want to make some lifestyle changes based on like blue zone information and things like that. Like what we know goes on, but you want to, for, to go from like healthy aging, which is sort of blue zone ideas to peak performance aging. What you need to add in is that sentence regularly engage in challenging creative and social activities that demand dynamic, deliberate play take place in novel outdoor environments. And dynamic, by the way, is simply a word that means tapping all five categories of functional fitness, strength, stamina, flexibility, balance, and agility. That's what dynamic means in that sentence. I mean, that's literally the formula. I mean, this is so valuable, Stephen. And that's why when you put it together in the context of of your story of of skiing into your fifties, that, uh, this is, this is such a great book, but let me, let me start with, but hold, hold on one sec. I got to pause you. Cause I got to ask you a question. Cause I know you and I know that you do exactly this stuff and you're all about continuously challenging your brain and putting yourself in new situations and trying stuff out. And you may not leave the house, but you still do comedy and you still like, I know what you're doing with your time and this is how you're living. Right. Am I wrong with that? You're you're right, and sometimes it's more difficult than other times. And I see some of the differences between myself now and myself as a kid. So this is what I'm I'm really dr- drilling down on. Like some things are slower. I think maybe memory, maybe processing speed. Maybe I don't do enough physical activity to kind of keep those things going. I mean, I do some physical activity, but maybe obviously not as much as you. I don't go skiing. I don't 
I don't really go. Well, out. I'll give you a, like, a, but I'll give you a weird one. You know this from the book, and it's a weird one, right? Because this is the thing about peak performance aging is it's unusual in ways that you don't. The single most important correlate for preserving cognitive function is leg strength. I, I was going to ask you about nobody. Re nobody really I, knows I know why, right? I mean, there's a whole bunch of guesses. Bone density is one reason. If your legs are strong, the biggest bones in your body are there, and so if they're the storehouse of minerals that the brain is using to run. Right, so that's one. Two is the number one thing you can do to preserve uh, cognitive function is have a robust social life, right? And if your ability to move around goes, your social life can go, especially the in-person portion where you're getting all those good pro-social neurochemicals that are really important. So do, do those you think we get are the that through Zoom. Like, do you think we get some of those uh, neurochemicals? You know, like so right now. Yeah, what? yeah. I've had this conversation. People ask me a lot: Can you get group flow or team flow through Zoom? And I've had conversations like Paul Zach, the world's leading expert on oxytocin. Can you get oxytocin through Zoom? Those kinds of questions. And I think the answer is yes. But it's hard. You need to be really good at active listening. You need to be really good at focus. Like there's a lot. All the the focus burden goes way up. It's you know it's tricky to connect. Um, uh, sometimes you got to like sort of remember to look into your camera so you're making eye contact and you're doing like those sorts of things. So I think the answer is yes. But you sort of got to know what you're doing. So okay, all of this I'm gonna have questions about. And by the way, did you know? Leg strength is one of the biggest things that correlates to golf ability. So, like, I have no idea. Yeah. So, like, if I like will a, tell you, the shortcut on the ten thousand hour rule for golf is to improve your leg strength. No shit. That's interesting. That I don't explain why Tiger uh, Woods got so big right in the middle of his career when he got when, when Tiger like you know disappeared for a little while and just came back ripped. Um, one question or one thing that uh, I th I've noticed uh, in training leg strength. Um, and I've been really sort of since the Nara Country Adventure began, I've been really interested in training leg strength. I set my squat record last summer at age 55 for my like lifetime squat record. Um, well, what's your one of the things I've record? noticed. I'm, I'm 55 right now. I'm going to go for it. Um, it was 230, 245, oh, man. which is not a great squat record, but I weigh 150 pounds. But I would go slowly. But uh, my my point there is one of the things that's really interesting about leg strength that nobody talks about is it directly correlates with confidence. When your legs are stronger, you're you're more grounded on the earth. You're more balanced. You can more you can flee in more directions. You can fight for more. Like it directly has it has a huge impact on confidence that I did not see coming. And I've talked to other. Uh, other folks about it, and it seems to be consistent. I haven't seen a lot of studies on it, so I'm thinking about doing one. Um, but I've definitely noticed it. That is that is fascinating. And so let me ask you a question: If would you exercise your leg muscles right before going out to a uh, an event where you need peak performance, or is it just sort of over time? No, I train. I train my legs really, really hard in the off season and during the season. If I'm skiing. Four times a week, uh, I won't do anything other than uh, like I'll, I do like a, a very specific kind of re revolution motion is one of the systems I train with. Edith House, who runs it, is a genius. And so I do a, her protocol. It's like a 20-minute workout, and then I'll do push-ups with a weight vest on, and I hike my dog. And sometimes I'll bring a lightweight vest for the dog hikes in season, but that's 
Um, if I'm skiing three days a week, you know, and traveling or something like that, I may go to a hotel gym and, and, and train train one day, but I um, don't uh, do a whole lot of uh, lifting during the season. I train like mad in the off season. In season, I do just enough so I preserve what I have. It's very easy for me to shed pounds and I don't want to do that in the middle of ski season. That gets dangerous. So I do what I can to preserve it during the season and I build it in the off season. So l- let's start with, you know, what you called the gateways to our kind of the superpowers we get later on in our, in our fifties in, in in your thirties, you say, we need to figure out who we are in the world. We need to figure out, you know, what our identity is. And I think, I think that that sounds correct, but at the same time, there's kind of a gray area there, which is, do you ever really know who you are? I mean, well, that's, yeah. So I think that's all, that's a question I've been asking a lot. Right. Cause like that one of the, one of the things about, so the book talks about authenticity also and the importance of, of authenticity over time for a lot of different reasons. One of the, the key lessons that comes out of, out of the studies of authenticity is there's no such thing as an authentic self. The self is a process, right? It's constantly changing. Authenticity is a verb. It's about how you act because there is no fixed self. And so that's a, it's an, you're asking an interesting question, but what I believe is meant by identity um, and it's really, remember, it's like Erickson's word, right? The key, the only difference is that Erickson said the crisis shows up at age 12 and is usually resolved by 18. And I don't know if that was the case in like the 20s and 30s when Erickson was writing, but it's certainly, I mean, like who's resolved the crisis of identity by 18? I certainly didn't, you know what I mean? But 30 seems about right. So it seems like it got extended out. And what they usually mean by that is, you want to know what your values are. You want to know who you're authentic, you know, how to live authentically, what your passion is, what your purpose is, how to get into flow. Those kinds of things get very wrapped up in what we mean by identity. And obviously um, there's an ongoing discussion about gender and sex roles and, you know, all that other stuff um, that uh, seems very, very fluid. And the idea that it has to be locked into place by 30 seems a little weird to me. What if you change your mind in your forties, right? Like, yeah, like but I, like, I mean, I, and I don't know, I mean, like, this is not this again, as I said, that's not my research. This is the stuff that comes out of the Harvard adult development project and George Valiant's work. And a, and a lot of other folks have worked on it over, over, over time. So there's a lot of psychological research that points at it. I'm interested in it because it unlocks peak performance aging. Authenticity and figuring out what, you, what who you are does help in your forties when you, when you need this match fit, like when you're doing something, let's say for career that fits with who you are. So that kind of flows naturally from that authenticity. And then, but then, um, this next gateway is this risk aversion idea. Like, yeah, no, no, it's self forgiveness. It's forgiveness of self. And And so I wanted wanted to ask about this. I think this slows me down. I think if anything, I was more forgiving in my forties than when I turned 50. Oh, that's interesting. That's and, so and I, I will tell you that I, you, well, it's, so here's the thing, James, about that one. I, the most of like of the, of the meditative techniques out there, uh, love and kindness meditation, compassion meditation is 
the most effective for like for a peak performance reasons. It's got about 11 different advantages, including, and this is a wild one. So one of the reasons we age, there are nine known causes of aging. And one of them is telomere attrition. And the telomeres are sort of like the bumpers on chromosomes, right? Chromosomes duplicate and the telomeres protected and they, they thin over time. So they did this crazy study. I don't know who dreamed it up or even came up with the question. They wanted to know, does loving kindness meditation um, protect telomeres? And they tested it against focus meditation. And they found out that, yes, in fact, loving kindness meditation um, protects against telomere attrition, whereas focus meditation, breathwork, that sort of stuff does not. So on top of like everything else that loving kindness meditation does on the self-forgiveness tip and, and forgiveness, and we'll get back there in a second, it actually keeps you younger. But what you'll, if you've never done loving kindness meditation, I like the script. So the University of New Hampshire uh, has a great script that's online for free. That's the one I use. It's 12 minutes long. And what's great if you've never done loving kindness meditation is you run a script. There's nothing to do. It's not even focused. It's so easy that anybody, you can do it while walking, you can do it while driving. And it automatically, forgiveness and forgiveness of others is about the temporal parietal junction and the medial prefrontal cortex. And it activates these areas and does its work, whether or not like, you know what I mean? It doesn't matter how you feel. Your job is to notice the emotions. If you don't feel very forgiveful of the people who are, you're directing the love and kindness to, you just notice that and it does its work automatically. So that's what's cool about like this particular gateway of adult development. There's a tool that we know works. It does. It has all kinds of focus and stress relief and health benefits, but it also helps us solve this challenge and it takes 11 minutes and anybody can do it because it's a damn script. You're just running a script. I do it when I get into the sauna or the bathtub at the end of the day for like a recovery thing. I, I, I'll do like Wim Hof breathing and then, you know, and then run the script through love and kindness. And is this related to like, uh, I remember one time you told me one way to get into flow, like one way to get into flow is to do what you do, which is you get into these high stakes physical situations and flow kind of kicks in. Um, but another way you told me in, in, a, in a mental setting or a cognitive setting is gratitude and, you know, kind of think of things you're grateful for. And what's, so what's it's the world? Yeah, it's, it's, so it's very different. Gratitude, this is Glenn, we did work with Dr. Glenn Fox at USC, who's I think the best neuroscientist in the country on gratitude. And what we didn't, gratitude doesn't tend to work as a flow trigger, um, though it has an indirect effect on how the challenge skills balance works. And we're gonna come back to that in a second. Um, what gratitude seems to do is because it calms you down, it's a really good way of tuning your nervous system over time. It makes you more flow prone. So people with a regular gratitude practice end up getting more flow. That's different than using risk or creativity or novelty as flow triggers, which is sort of, and I don't, you know, one of the things about skiing and park skiing, this is going to sound really funny. So, uh, I think I tell this story at the end of the book. Um, uh, one of the real reasons I started writing NAR is the last conversation I ever had with Miha Csikszentmihalyi, godfather of flow psychology. He passed away during COVID. The last time we talked was about six months prior to COVID. 
he had had a stroke. He was in his 80s. He had a stroke, and I was called to check on him, and I called to ask him a question about the role. He was a lifelong mountaineer and a little bit of a rock climber and, uh, and lived in Montana, loved to hike. He was always outside. And I just wanted to know, he never really talked about it anywhere, and I've seen some articles where he talks about his rock climbing and his mountaineering, and I, he was re- I knew he was really passionate. So I just called to ask him about the role that action sports and, and those sports had played in his flow research and to make sure he was okay. And there's this like long pause. I asked this question about action sports and there's long pause. It's like almost two minutes long and I'm freaking out. I'm like, oh my God, did I say something wrong? Did I piss off like the godfather of flow and like this man I idolized? So I'm like, what the hell is going on? And suddenly he just says, Steven, you gotta be careful. I was like, what, Mike, what do you, what, what do you talk, what do you mean? I gotta be, I gotta be careful what? He's like, well, he said, you do something your whole life for flow. And then you get to be my age and forget about climbing mountains or climbing rocks. Most days I can't get out of bed. You need a backup plan. You got to be careful. So my backup plan was actually learning how to park ski. And that sounds really crazy, but skiing had always been my main flow activity, right? Like rock climbing or, or mountaineering for Mike. And I was mostly a big mountain skier, which did involve what you said, taking bigger and bigger chances, pushing into farther flung novel environments and taking bigger chances, you know, that sort of thing. And listening to Mike, I was like, that is not sustainable over time. That seems like a really bad idea. So um, I taught myself how to park ski. Why? Because in park skiing, even though it looks really scary when you see videos of it and everything else, what you're really doing is creatively interpreting terrain features. And when you look at a mound of snow and go, oh, I can throw a 360 or I can snow grind it or I can do whatever it is, that's pattern recognition. And pattern recognition drives dopamine into your system, which drives you into flow. So I can stack sort of like creative interpretation of terrain features on top of each other as a safer and more reliable entrance into flow. And um, in fact, that's exactly what has happened. And, and, and the funniest example of it is early season when like there's only enough snow to open up like the beginner runs and all my diehard skier friends are like, no, I'm not going. There's one beginner run opening. What do I care? And I can go with a couple of my friends and we can turn the beginner run and the little like bumps and whatever all over it into a slope style course and have an absolute blast. And it just becomes a playground and it's not very risky. I'm doing stuff that's super not dangerous, but it's very, very flowy. And so that was one of the reasons I I created in our country and I got into it is that was part of my backup plan. I'm also teaching myself how to play piano and, you know, a bunch of other things as well. So I can have non-physical stuff if I need it. So so it's interesting. So you you take things where, well, let's just call it for what it is. It's a little easier, but you still make it playful. You still make it challenging for yourself. And you're able to kind of um, keep practicing this flow state in anticipation of, you know, the bigger runs opening up. Yeah, and and that's absolutely. I mean, when the bigger runs open up and the train parks open up, you know, we'll go over there and we'll we'll do the same thing. But um, it was really it allowed me to turn like really crap bad conditions into a blast. Um, and it allowed me because there's very little snow for the first month of the season. I have an extra month of skiing that other people don't have because other people want the mountains to open up and I just need a patch of snow to set up a little rail and I'm good to go. So it's so interesting. So it reminds me of something um, Tony Robbins was once telling me on the podcast, which is that he had to train a bunch of Marines target practice or, you know, hit the target. And first he put the target 
two feet from them. Then he moved it back a foot, then back a foot. And they're always hitting the bullseye, back a foot, back a foot. Finally, it's like the full length and they're still hitting the bullseyes because they start with something easy. And yeah, and so it's got a playfulness. This, so yeah, so let me, so this was one of the big realizations. So I said, I, you know, Mike made that comment and I basically, like I, the long slow rot theory and, and the idea that our skills don't decline over time, that's sort of, I've known that for a while, but there's a bunch of new stuff flow science and body cognition, a couple other places that said, hey, it should be possible to onboard difficult physical skills in our 50s, right? That's where the experiment came from. And one of the things that was one of the real insights, the big insights, the flow insight is much in line with what you're talking about here. So I think we've talked about this before on your podcast, but flow states have triggers. You alluded to it early on. I talked about novelty, creativity, whatever. The most famous, the challenge skills balance, right? We Flow follows focus. It only shows up when all of our attention is on the right here, right now. We pay the most attention, task at hand, when the challenge slightly exceeds our skill set. So you want to stretch, but not snap. Metaphorically, this is not real science. This is just metaphor, but it's metaphor to, to practice by. Is a general that's about a five, four to five percent difference between challenge and skills. We pay the most attention, we have the best chance of getting into flow when the challenge is about five percent greater than the skills we're bringing to it. So you're stretching, but not very far. But we realize because of something big fancy term here, allostatic load, which is literally the impact of like trauma over time on our physiology and our psychology. We realized that would impact the challenge skills balance, even if people didn't realize it. And so we realized in older adults that balance might be one degree open, 1% or 2%. So our core motto was one inch at a time. Start with an established motor pattern, something you can do 100% of the time, completely unconsciously, never, your brain never has to think about it, no problems, no fear, and build on it in a playful manner, but one inch at a time. And that's sort of how we did it. And, 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 and with skiing and snowboarding was really easy because Every single uh, buddy who's like through advanced beginner knows how to hockey stop, to turn their board or their skis sideways and stop, And right? If you change the angle of a hockey stop, if you have somebody hockey stop on a half a foot mound of snow, that's a grind. They're now doing a snow grind. So we knew everybody knows how to hockey stop in our, like when we did it as a study group, because we had, we started with intermediates in our study group. And we knew they knew they had this basic skill that they could execute with no fear. And that's what we started building on. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. 
From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Let me ask like in a kind of competitive context. Let's say two people are playing tennis and let's say the two people have the exact same level of skill in tennis. And, and because they're doing this physical activity and they're focused, they're getting into flow and, but let's further assume the per because their skills are equal, the person who gets into more flow during their tennis match will win. How does someone kind of, and how does, how does someone use that knowledge to get into more flow against their competitor in a tennis match? Well, so the first answer is I don't, I mean, I don't, I can, I, I can, there are tennis flow experts who actually have real answers to this question. Um, I, uh, I don't coach, right? I have the best coaches in the world working for me and I definitely don't coach tennis players. Um, no, but this is just like in general competitive but environment. So, um, I'll give you a simple one and it's a weird, so I, I'm going to take it into a different sport, uh, and give you a uh, football. So I, I, once I, I did consult for a, a major college football program. I can't tell you which one. Um, their idea was, hey, if flow maximizes performance, if we can get our players in flow before practice, injuries will go down during practice. That was the theory. Turned out to be right. So the question was, how do you put a football team into flow before they get into practice? And this is sort of what I might say about the tennis player. Same approach. Well, all we did, it was really simple. It was, it was remarkably dumb, but it worked, was every football coach in the history of the universe starts practice by having their players run around the football field twice, right? It's about a half mile run or, you know, four times or whatever it is. And all we did is say, let's take it off the football field and into the woods. We're having them trail run and use, most importantly, use the terrain to interpret. So if they saw a hill, use it as a bank and that sort of stuff. For the bigger guys, like the, the, the 300 pound lineman or whatever, who may not want running a mile through the woods, we would have them do shoulder rolls and things on the ground and things that mimicked stuff they might do in the game, but in the woods and just using terrain features really mildly as a warm up run, just to loosen up the body and there's novelty, there's complexity, there's unpredictability, there's a creative interpretation of terrain features, um, all of which work to your advantage. In time in nature, as you know, lowers stress levels. Um, and so by lowering stress levels, also by spending time in nature, it's easier, a little easier to get into the challenge skills balance. You're a little calmer to begin with. So there were sort of other benefits, but that like in the actual tennis game, I, you know, risk, no, that was good, though, novelty, pre, right? Pre but like, yeah, that's good. a really simple one. That's a really simple one. Well, now, during the tennis game, though, which I interrupted you and you were about to say it, but I would say novel. I mean, I mean, risk is really easy, right? I mean, risk charge the net, and um, and it works. You know, that tends to put you drop people into flow. Those kinds of things. You can see risk at work, creativity at work would also do it. Um, I'm wondering I don't if you this role here though. Like Pardon so me? In, in tennis, if you're, let's say both players- James, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not a tennis player. So you're, you're, right, you right. might well, as well on, on Mars, on so, Mars. Okay, 
I'm not a tennis player either. So uh, football or any sport or golf, I'm not a golf player. You, you, you miss a shot you thought you would have gotten. And instead of feeling playful, suddenly you feel shame. So yeah, being aware that this is somehow connected to flow and performance. Yeah. So how would yeah, you adjust so the, yourself? The, yeah, how so, would you cognitively okay. adjust yourself so, to yeah, not okay, feel so that's, ashamed? Let me, so, um, again, let me, I'm going to answer it sideways by talking about something we did. So when you're in flow, the prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain that's back here, is really quiet. When you're feeling shame, when the ego gets involved at all, which is shame among other things, uh, the prefrontal cortex gets really active again. So it'll knock you out of flow, right? That's the problem with shame. To keep people in flow when we were skiing, one of the things we did is we weren't worrying about the skiing. We were worried about what happened on the chairlift between, right? You ski for five minutes, it's pretty easy to be focused on the skiing, but what goes on in the chairlift? So we wouldn't allow people to talk about themselves um, or ask questions about um so you couldn't say, hey, what do you do for a living? Or, hey, but you couldn't talk about world events. Anything that could produce a, like a negative emotional reaction, stayed away from. And that actually helped preserve people's flow state. And the flow took care of all the learning for us, right? Because it massively accelerates learning. So that was like our goal was to like teach them these novel creative movements, let them interpret creative terrain features, let that drop them into flow. Flow takes care of all the learning. We didn't have to really do that. And it's safer to you know, learn dangerous, difficult things in flow because everything's working better and you're less afraid. Um, and being less afraid matters because if you do happen to crash, fear tightens up your, your bones and you get way more injured. So if you can stay loose during a ski crash, it's way safer. And what about you? Let's say the crash happens or some, or some other thing happens that doesn't break your legs or anything like that. You're able to continue, but you feel shame right there in the event. So it's yeah, so, so, um, well, I, I, so, uh, <laughs> I um I can give it to you in skiing. I'd have to work backwards into tennis. So one yeah, really good emotional. Really, well, let's talk about tennis for a second though, because we actually know I know this answer. Um, really good emotional regulation is the secret. So top peak performers, it's not that they don't have that bad emotion; it's that they put it down very, very quickly. They've got really good emotional regulation. They recognize the sensation. They recognize what it is, and they can let it go really quickly. Some of that comes from meditative training, right? And and like the stuff you do to lower your stress response, that sort of thing, uh, can be very, very useful in that way. Um, also, um, I in skiing. If I, when, when, when I do something and I fall and it scares me, it used to be I would immediately come back to it and try it again. And that usually is counterproductive for me because I've got too much fear in my system. It's working against me. Now what I do is, and it took, I had to put down the shame. I had to put down the, oh, I'm coming right back. I'm going to get it. I, I let it go and I go seek novelty. I'll go literally to another part of the mountain, do stuff that's really mellow, ski in a different way. Maybe I'll just go, you know, ski some big mountain lines. I'll go get my confidence back elsewhere. First, I'll try to get back into flow using like novelty and unpredictability, go find new stuff and ski new lines um, and drive myself back into, and build my confidence back up and then come back. Well, that, that's so, so one way to build confidence, you mentioned earlier, 
was surprisingly to build leg strength. That's fascinating. Another way to build confidence, which we've been discussing is, okay, take your activity that you're, that you're an expert in or developing expertise in, do something a little simpler in the same activity and you'll build back confidence. What are other ways to build up confidence? So we're talking about eliminating shame, feeling loving kindness, emotional regulation. That's interesting. I, so, um, that's a shrink question. I'm not a shrink. Um, when I think about confidence, you're not a tennis I usually player. think you're not a shrink. You're not. Yeah, this, I use it, but no, I, think I used to try to think about it in terms of peak human performance. Yeah, I so um, to me, let's first of all, let's go sideways at this. So we talked earlier about cognitive reserve. I don't know. Are you familiar with that term, cognitive reserve? Only when you mention it. Okay, so in the '90s, a guy named Yakov Sturb, they're they're studying the Sisters of Notre Dame big organization of nuns. And they're really into science. They're really into education. They've taken cognitive tests every year, taking physical tests every year, and they've donated their brains to science. So everybody gets autopsied after they die. And these women start dying. Um, and they're very, you know, they're very, and they, they learn a ton of stuff. We learn about some of the early work on optimism and successful aging and mindset and successful aging comes out of this work. But one of the fascinating things is the sisters start dying and they're autopsying a lot of their brains. And these are like really healthy, active women who are like teaching school and, you know, and they're in their not late nineties or hundreds. So they've lived very long time. They look at their brains, their brains are packed with Alzheimer's and dementia, like plaques and tangles everywhere. And the question becomes, holy crap, how is it that they've got advanced Alzheimer's and dementia and they're still performing really well? Right. And this question gets asked a bunch of different ways. It gets asked in art world because William de Kooning has advanced Alzheimer's and um, yet he's painting the father of abstract expression was painting paintings that are selling for millions of, you know, tens of millions of dollars at Sotheby's right up till the, the day he dies. Yet he's got incredibly advanced Alzheimer's. So how, how is he doing, make, still making great art? And the big question was Reagan. So Reagan, it's revealed, you know, after he's out of office, has advanced Alzheimer's during his entire second term. And so the question becomes, well, how the hell did Ronald Reagan run the country? I mean, sure, he's got a cabinet and there's Nancy, but like, you still got to give press conference, you still got to show up and you're still the president. Yeah. And how does it happen? And what they start to realize is there's something called cognitive reserve. Cognitive reserve is literally why lifelong learning matters. If you want to stave off cognitive decline, dementia, and Alzheimer's, you need expertise and wisdom. Those are the two things that build up your cognitive reserve. And let me explain why. Most of cognitive decline takes place in the prefrontal cortex. It's the newest brain structure from an evolutionary perspective. It's the most vulnerable to, to decline. Like nothing happens to deep brain structures over time. They stay the same. Um, but the prefrontal cortex is vulnerable. And it turns out expertise and wisdom form really diffuse neural networks all across the prefrontal cortex with lots and lots and lots of redundancy. So lifelong learning, expertise, and wisdom are how we stay off cognitive decline. Now you asked a question about confidence and you've been very patient in letting me go in this direction. But I have to say that I think one of the things that I've always said, and this is why gratitude works and affirmations don't, um, we're really good built-in bullshit detectors, right? You can't fake confidence. You can do a little like entrepreneurs, there's a little like fake it till you make it that's in entrepreneurship, but that's not 
real confidence. And I believe that real confidence can really be gained through leg strength, expertise, and mastery and wisdom. Like those are, that's where real confidence comes from. Um, and, uh, Interestingly, one of the thinking theories about what flow is in the body is, among many other things, is a signal for mastery. When we get into flow doing a task, it's a signal that we've mastered that task and can perform with confidence. Um, so uh, flow, time and flow, tends to naturally increase confidence for this reason. Um, but I think, it's, I think it's sort of mastery, wisdom, flow. Those are the things that really sort of matter. So what if, what if you're listening to this and you're thinking to yourself, man, I'm 60 years old. I did my job all my life. I supported my family. You know, I was so busy working, supporting my family, paying my mortgage, paying the college bills. I never really got developed expertise in anything or mastery. In yeah. Anything. So here, so there, here's the cool thing. This is really cool. I love this because it's true in both directions. So, so two things are true here. One is we've been talking about shit like identity, right? That you, you want to solve that by 30. So clearly a, a bunch of the stuff in peak performance aging, um, you want to start young if you can, right? Lifelong learning. You want to start young if you can, but for the guy you just, or the woman you just described, right? There's also really cool research that shows interventions, even into your like late eighties. And I don't think anybody's actually looked at people in their nineties. So I don't think we, it's just, I don't, but we know interventions, even in your late eighties really, really matter. And I'll give you something shocking. So for physical exercise, right? Turns out the biggest lift you can get, like the biggest jump from like, you know, illness into health is for people who have been totally sedentary. Like it's the woman who hasn't moved in 25 years. She's in her late seventies and she decides she's going to get active again. And she goes from like totally passive to I'm no longer taking the escalator. I'm going to walk up the stairs. I'm no longer going to take a cab five blocks home. I'm going to walk five blocks home. But like, it's literally like five blocks or upstairs. That's the biggest lift is people who are totally sedentary into, oh, I'm going to start moving again. They get the biggest benefit. So it's, it's really clear that like peak performance aging starts young, but interventions at any age really seem to matter. So I think it's cool in both directions. Yeah. And you mentioned, um, and this obviously was not a late intervention, but you mentioned Stradivarius the famous violin maker made like, you know, half of his most expensive instruments in, in, in his nineties, something like that. Like when no, he was yeah, he made, a, he made a handful of the most expensive instruments in history. And this was one of the things that, how did I start to figure out that the, you, these are use it or lose it skills, not the, not the long, slow rot theory for me, like scientists start wherever we start. I start with Stradivarius because I heard this story and I, I was in her, you know, reading about Stradivarius and I, and I learned that he made two or three of the most famous musical instruments, most expensive musical instruments in history in his 90s. He was like 92 or 93. And this is like, it's the 16th century. We don't have modern medicine. We don't have anything. And I was like, well, how is that true? Like if, if we like rot over time, either Stradivarius is the like, wild exception to the rule and we ought to like you know dig up his bones and figure out what's in his dna or he's like he's doing something different but like you can't build a violin without fast twitch muscle response and you can't build or fine motor coordination and or all the mental performance i mean good god and i was like okay so this stuff can't be true and when you go into Stradivarius, 
This is the kicker. He built a thousand, over a thousand musical instruments in his lifetime. He never, he started when he was, you know, young and he never literally stopped until he died. So all the stuff you need to build violins never went away. And because expertise and wisdom are these diffuse neural networks with lots of redundancies, even if this part of his prefrontal cortex was attacked by dementia or Alzheimer's or whatever, it didn't go away because he's got backups everywhere else because wisdom and expertise, which is really what he had. So Stradivarius is like a classic example of all this stuff coming together in one person. And now I'm I'm still, I, I want to circle back to the very initial question, which is what, what are the abilities of the youth? Because again, the, the peak age for a mathematician is 25 years old. And by the way, your other peak ages for other careers confirm what you say. Like, so the peak age of a historian is in their seventies because they're, they do the pattern recognition much better. They do the non-dualistic thinking, you know, not kind of put their opinions over, uh, you know, reality too much, but what is it about, let's say mathematicians or scientists, what are they doing in their brain? Well, so let's, so one, one of the things is you know, I think especially with mathematicians and like, you don't know what you don't know. I think the stuff, I think here's the truth. Cause first of all, we know that's bullshit. Feynman did great work his whole life. That's so true. like, there's a lot of mathematicians, physicists. Yeah, I mean, good God, everybody at the Santa Fe Institute, there's very few people there who are young and they're doing killer complexity math, you know, in, um, later on. So we know that's not always true, but what I think is true, I think math is sort of, it's like the play thing. I think the way people approach math to a certain point is very, very playful. And I think that's what starts to go away. It starts to matter. And you've published a couple big ideas and now your ego's involved. And like, I think the approach changes a lot. I think self-consciousness increases. I think fear increases. And certainly, um, there's a stress that, you know, mathematicians seem to feel is my best work behind me. And I can tell you flat out, the part of the brain that finds distant connections between far-flung ideas is the anterior cingulate cortex, and it governs decision-making. And the more fear in the system, the more logical, linear, less creative, tried, true, safe, traditional, conservative, that part of the brain is. So if you've got stress levels increasing because of this mathematical curse that everybody's living under, um, I'm, the, you know, we, how much do we know about the nocebo effect and the placebo effect? And I'm just, I just want to point out that, that this may be a self-created prophecy mm. as mm. much as an actual fact. And I don't know. Um, and there could be, there. I mean, the argument is that there are aspects of fluid intelligence that are highest in youth and you get crystallized intelligence uh, in older adults. I think that's, there are parts of it that seem to be a little bit true, but again, I like, I don't trust statements like that because every one of them that we've believed um, in the past, you know, hundred years has turned out not to be true. Maybe there will be a couple that turn out to be true where you're like, oh yeah, this really does stop here and there's no way to reboot it, restart it, re-expand it and no, no way to make up for the loss. Maybe that turns out to be the case. And, you know, I'll come on in five years and have a different answer for you. But it's 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 an interesting way of thinking about it. And I don't know. But math, you are right with mathematicians there. I mean, that that idea has been around for a very long time. There's a lot of people who, who subscribe to it. Yeah. And so I'm wondering if 
okay, like I've I've asked you, like, how do you increase confidence? How do you reduce shame? How do you do? How do you? And and we kind of talked about this, but how would you increase playfulness? Because like you like you said, maybe oh, the younger yeah, 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 yeah. That's, more that's, playful. That's a great. Yeah, that's a great question. What we emphasize is dynamic, deliberate play, and deliberate play is a very specific thing. So. Dynamic, we talked about it, utilizes all five categories of functional fitness. Deliberate play is is sort of, you're familiar with Anders Ericsson's work in deliberate yeah. practice, the 10,000 hours, right? So Anders himself, um, and a lot of other people have pointed out that deliberate practice is great. It's repetition with incremental advancement, but it's only great for certain kinds of skills. And for most skills, deliberate play outperforms deliberate practice. And deliberate play is defined as repetition without repetition or repetition with improvisation. So um, you do what you did before, but instead of you just freestyle on top of it in a creative, fun, interesting way, the reason it matters so much is when we're playful, you get the periocral gray and parts of the, the brainstem where we get a lot of our endorphin, you get a ton of endorphins. So these are feel good, neurochemicals, they're social bonding chemicals, um, but uh, they're pain-killing chemicals, um, and I, they I like this really help cement deliberate memories. play. This makes Pardon a lot me? of sense, this notion of deliberate play, because I'll tell you what makes sense about it, is that when you're, when you're deliberately trying to play, but you're going over something that, like if you're skiing down the same path, chances are you want to do it the exact same way you did it before, where you were successful. So what when you're if you're doing it in a deliberately playful way, your mind is going to start looking for more possibilities and more options yes. that you have, yeah, and maybe exactly. that increases the the range of that. That oh, just increases sure. your neurons. Yeah, it increases the range. It also the difference between deliberate practice and deliberate play is in deliberate practice there's wrong. There's only one way to get it right. You have one right. And everything else but that one thing, I did what I did before and I pushed it a little farther, is wrong. In deliberate play, there's only one thing that's wrong, which is I did the same thing I did before. Everything else is right. You've got 364 degrees of other right variations to choose from and positive emotions lead to, you know, better performance of learning and memory and all like on and on and on. So it, it totally makes sense. There are times, I have found that if I'm really trying to like ski a very scary line, for example, right? Like not usually a park trick, but like skiing a really big line. If it scares me the first time, I will come back. And that's a situation where deliberate practice works. I want to do exactly what I did last time because it worked. I just want to make it a little bit better. And then I'll have to, and I will deliberate practice for like, four or five runs until I get the pattern recognition and I'm comfortable. And then I move to deliberate play and really start learning on top of it. But there's a, there's a time, there's certain situations where I'm like, oh no, I'm not gonna be playful in here. This is life or death. I'm gonna get this line down and, and, and get this right. Um, but that's the only time I, I, I actually use deliberate, pract uh, deliberate practice versus deliberate play. And, and by the way, James, this is not new. I think the first mention of deliberate play, I want to say is 1979 or 89. It's like, it's not a, uh, it's not a new idea. Originally what's new is because of embodied cognition, because of these sciences like that, we understand a lot more of how it works. Um, I would also, if you're, if you're really interested in the answer to this question, I would check out um, 
uh, a woman you should have on your podcast, my, my dear friend, Catherine Price, who wrote a great book called The Power of Fun. She was just on Oprah talking about this. And she looks at play, she looks at fun as the intersection of play, social connection and flow. And has really like, she's got like fun meetups and, 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 and has been doing really cool stuff around that aspect. For us, um, we were trying to do uh, sort of NAR style meetups. Uh, I think this is where it's gonna grow to. It'll probably start with skiing and snowboarding just cause there's like a lot of, it's core to the book, but people have been like popping up all over the place to say I'm leading NAR style hikes in the backcountry or, you know, various other things. I've got like 11 different pro athletes and 11 different sports who wanna start NAR style approaches to, to their sport. So we'll see where it goes. Um, I just think it's fun. Well, uh, Stephen, uh, once again, this is like the twelfth time you've been on the podcast. I don't know how many times you've been on the podcast. For for most of your fourteen books, you've been on this podcast talking about the book, and this to me has been maybe the most fascinating one we've done. Like like I really learned a lot, and I'm really going to apply a lot of this in my in my own life and my own activities. Now that like, we're, how old are you right now? You're fifty five. Fifty five. Yeah, we're the same age. Yeah. What what what's your birthday? <laughs> May twenty fifth. Okay, I'm January twenty second, so I just turned fifty five. You're you're a little bit. Oh, ahead I'm of me. older. By the yeah. way, I don't know if you've done this. If this if you go to the 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 website for the book, which is narcountry.com, there's and click on the first of all, watch the introduction to Park Scheme video because you'll laugh really hard. But second of all, click on the Peak Performance Aging Experiment video. So this is we took all the same ideas that I used and my ski partner used that we talked about in our country, and we trained up seventeen older adults ages twenty nine to sixty eight um, in these same skills in like four days on the mountain, and we had a Nat Geo uh, uh, cameraman following us around the whole time, and we made a, a fun video. The white paper's there too, which which you'll like. Um, but the video is really, really fun. Oh, this is great. Yeah, I'm going to definitely check this out. Thank you. And thanks once again for coming on the podcast. NAR Country spelled G-N-A-R, but I'll say that also in the intro. And uh, this is great. Oh, it looks like a lot of great This blog. is great. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Once again, for your interest in my work. I totally appreciate it, man. Absolutely. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. <laughs> 